Hi, uh, welcome to the New Voting Project. My name is Kunal, your host, and today we are very excited to have Professor Deandra Rose, who's an Associate Professor of Public Policy and Political Science and History at Duke University, oh, Blue Devils, if I say so myself. Uh, you are also the Director of Polis, the Center of Politics at Duke University, um, and the Co-Director of North Carolina Scholar Strategy. Um, your research primarily focuses on US higher education policy, political behavior, the development of American politics, um, and the politics of inequality, which are all fascinating and very current topics of these days. Uh, you're also the author of Citizens by Degree, Higher Education Policy and Changing Gender Dynamics of American Politics. Uh, so, so no, you're very distinguished. I don't know if I did you know, much greatness in the intro, but I do appreciate you taking the time to come out. Kano, thank you so much for having me with you today. It is a true privilege. Thank you, thank you. All right, so let's get into these questions. Um, just for our viewers, first one, uh, talk a little bit about your background, how you became interested in, in politics and in political science and, and how your journey has kind of formed to where you are today. So I am a political scientist. I am a political scientist who focuses on American politics and public policy. I'm a political historian. So a lot of my work focuses on this sort of long uh, time horizon of political and policy history. I'm especially interested in US higher education policy and questions of how lawmakers have used higher education and higher education programs to help particularly marginalized or historically excluded groups to move into institutions of higher learning and by extension to gain knowledge and skills and experiences that make it easier for them to participate in politics and as democratic citizens. Wow, no, that sounds fairly fairly complicated, but very interesting, I think. Uh, so, so I'm very glad to have you on the show um, and, and hopefully we're gonna get to learn a little bit about your work. Um, so, so I guess starting with that, talk about, I guess, what you do uh, as, as director of the Center of Politics at Duke University and, of course, the North Carolina Scholars Strategy Network, kind of how those things are, are intersected and maybe they're not, um, and, and what these organizations hopefully um, want to encourage in, in young students and, and civic leaders. Well, you know, my pathway to political science was somewhat circuitous. I actually started off as someone who was very interested in politics early on. So as a young person, I don't know, like, Kunal, I bet you were president of your class in elementary, were you? Uh, no, I, uh, they didn't have elections then, but I am now, technically. You are now? Okay, yeah. well, well, you and I shared a, a, an interest in, in leadership early on. And so like you, I was very keen on participating in student government and uh, did a lot of service in my school, did a lot of community service work, and really became fascinated with questions about how we get stuff done. How do we solve problems as a society? So if we think about, you know, we've got, of course, individual level challenges, but what about the challenges that we face as communities and might, if we band together, gain some leverage on? And okay, so let's say we identify a challenge that we want to address. How do we do it? You know, who has the authority to do it? Uh, who gets to be quote unquote in charge or to, to get the responsibility of, of correcting things or improving things? So those are some of the questions I found myself very early on curious about yeah. in my own sort of uh, community spaces or in my own small circles. 
And then as I became, I sort of um, progressed in, in my schooling and started doing work with local political leaders. And so I was, I was also very, um, interestingly, I love politics, but I also loved research. So you know, no matter what I was working on, or I had a new idea or a new passion, I you know, immediately made a beeline to the, re- to the library to do some research. Okay. And so I started to do research actually as an intern for a legislator uh, in the state of Georgia. And early on realized that I loved thinking about issues that had policy implications or thinking through policy possibilities as mechanisms for solving problems or addressing challenges. So my work as a scholar has really emanated out of that. I'm really interested in the lessons that we can gain from history if we wanna really think seriously about moving forward and addressing our contemporary problems. So, Um, The kind of work that I do in the North Carolina Scholars Strategy Network is just a fabulous confluence of those interests. So SSN is part of this broader federal organization that seeks to connect researchers with policymakers, journalists, and other advocates, and and particularly policy advocates, Mm -hmm. in hopes of helping to generate evidence-based public policy. Right. You know, so you might think, well, all all policy is evidence based. Well, not always. You know, yeah. there are lots of <laughs> lots very of very rarely that, actually. I think it's evidence based. <laughs> is it even a thing? Exactly. Yeah. Like, how often does it happen? Um, so, so you know, there's so many instances where experts, people who actually study the areas or the issues that are critical for thinking through a particular policy challenge or policy area, oftentimes those voices are not. on the front lines as lawmakers are making decisions about what to do with policies. And so this organization is, it's, to be honest, it's revolutionary because it seeks to bring researchers, typically we're we're university-based researchers who are interested in playing a role in helping to generate great public policy. And so, you know, we actually find ways to translate our research into formats that can be accessible not just to our colleagues in you know, seminar rooms or at conferences, but actually, you know, to make the research legible to the broader public. Um, we do a lot of memo writing. People in the organization have have organized working groups where they've connected with legislators. Um, we've had really nice mixer events where we've compiled or we've organized and, and brought together panels of lawmakers and scholars to talk about the work that they've right. done collaboratively. And it's really inspiring, actually. Um, one of the things that, that actually grew out of SSN was something that has really changed my work at Duke and something that my students do in their classwork. Um, so my, my colleague, Professor Nick Carnes, and I, for a few years, co-directed Scholar Strategy Network here in North Carolina. And at one point, we really wanted to go to Raleigh to touch base with policymakers. So the two of us, along with um, our then postdoctoral scholar, Natalie Hengstebeck, we went to Raleigh and we basically went door to door and talked to a number of lawmakers and said, hey, you know, 
we represent this organization called Scholar Strategy Network in North Carolina. We're part of this amazing group of, of scholars and researchers here in the state. We've got this brain trust in North Carolina. Basically, and, I was about to right? say, we've developed a brain trust. It's a brain people. trust. Yeah. It is amazing. I mean, just so many universities in this area. And you know, we want to help. And so the lawmakers were really receptive to this and started sharing fascinating questions with us. Like, okay, I do, I'm interested in, in crafting a bill related to K through 12 education. You know, what do you think about this question? And we soon found that a number of the questions that lawmakers were asking, though fascinating, were not necessarily aligned with the kind of research that we were doing in our own agendas. So, you know, while we could weigh in, it might mean taking a, a, a serious and very nimble pivot away from something that you're working on, if it's a book manuscript or an article. Right. So I started thinking, is there a way that I might be able to bring my students into this work? And so one semester, I believe it was in 2019, I basically reached out to lawmakers across the state and I asked, are you working on any new topics where you could use some, some you know, energetic introductory research um, from, from undergrad students. And we got these amazing questions. And I have to say, Kunal, questions that were much better than the ones I could have dreamed up as you know, the professor who spends a lot of time reading. Um, but things like, you know, related to exotic pets in North Carolina or retaining nurses in the state or teachers or, or providing broadband access to rural North Carolina, like all these really you know, important cutting edge topics. Right. And the students just, I mean, they tore these, these memos up. They did fabulous memos and their research really went to help create policy. You know, these are resources and tools that our policymakers were able, able to, to draw upon as they considered their next steps for some new policy innovations. So one example of how my, my passion for politics, my passion for engaged uh, public policy and being an engaged scholar, and my work with students have, have really combined in some really interesting and exciting ways. No, I believe that. And I think that's a program that should be expanded to, for, throughout the country, I would imagine that then most lawmakers, especially when, you know, I, I took it a little bit of a different route. You had mentioned being, you know, interested in student government, all that. I did all that. And I said, I asked the same question, what else can I be doing? And I took the campaign route. Mm -hmm. And the easiest thing for me to say to people is that anybody is capable of, of walking door to door, whether it be for mm -hmm. research purposes or to to spread to to spread your message and, and communicate with voters so i think mm -hmm. that it, it's it's highly significant that that people get involved and research researching the issues that you like um and and potentially even running a proposition or having a state legislator sponsor a bill based on it is is, is incredible so so no that that's a fantastic thing and uh, if i find myself in north carolina i will be doing that um in, in the foreseeable future Oh my gosh. Well, we will welcome you to the team, Kano. Another thing that I would mention, so you asked about SSID and also right. POLIS, the Politics Center. Right. So I, I direct POLIS and it's our Center for Politics at Duke. Right. And we do three major things. First, we really seek to provide rich, meaningful political conversations. So that might mean getting students together and giving them an opportunity to really delve into some tricky, you know, perhaps complex and if not delicate political situations or issues. Mm 
and ideally providing them with some some valuable tools to facilitate doing that kind of work. Second, you know, and I guess one one other thing I'll tag on is in addition to providing opportunities to sort of practice the discourse, also providing opportunities to, to watch that modeled in really effective ways. So we bring in really prominent guest speakers who can help us really, you know, think deeply and richly about a number of different topics. The second thing we do is to highlight politics related research. So going back to that previous point about about just connecting evidence and scholarship with the work that policymakers are doing, it's critical. And I think that's really a a major responsibility of the educational sector, higher education in particular. Um, And then finally, we work to provide students with on-ramps to politics. So we want to help students to make their way to campaigns like you know, because, you know, like you say, yeah, that door-to-door work can be done in lots of different sectors. We certainly need it in our democracy. As a former campaigner, I have to say uh, it's 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 not for the faint of heart. Yes, <laughs> it's, no, it's, it's such... brutal grunt work <laughs> at its finest. I bet you have great stories. I do. I there there are many stories. There's one time I got chased by a Doberman. It's very interesting. It, but I think the best stories are when the you know out of the twenty houses you're going to hit. Uh, on on the apps these days, right? Everything's digitized. There's going to be one house where there's there's going to be a non-voter, um, and and you're going to have to pour your heart and soul out and mm-hmm. and convince them that no matter what you vote, I don't care. Even if you vote for my candidate, I want you to become a registered voter so that next time you're not having to deal with the process of how do I do it or where do I find the information, right? And that's the story that I love because that's what I do it for is is to get that one voter to 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 the polls. I agree. It matters. It really does. And and studies show that once people are sort of introduced to and integrated into the voting polity, they're likely to remain. Yeah, they're see it over time. It's and it's it's just it's it's critical for our democracy. And and like you say, it is hard work. I can tell you stories too, Canola. Like I've been cussed out. Oh yeah. (laughs) Oh yeah. Hang up on and and especially from opponents. You know, they'll they'll criticize the philosophy and and they'll yell at you, but. Regardless of that, it's all it's all a journey. And someone once called me once someone once called me back to apologize for cussing me out the day before. That was really nice. I, that, that was kind. Nice, yeah. North Carolina yeah. might be different, but it doesn't really. This matter. was in Minnesota. Yeah, this was in Minnesota. See, it it doesn't matter where you are. You would assume states like you know New York, California, highly you know liberal, blue. You know we're all we're all screaming we're progressives, but at the end of the day, you're going to find that one community that isn't really voting or is is not voting because they feel their voices are are being marginalized and they're not being served by their public servant. Um, and, and so that's that's why we campaign. And I think in tandem, in conjunction with research driven the policy, it, it just becomes this this kind of um, yin yang situation where it's balanced and you create legislative opportunities for people. Um, but but no, that's great. I'm, I'm really glad that that Duke is doing this great work at the Center of Politics. Ah, thank you so much. Yeah. Um, so, yes, the, the, the point of this show and it was originated out of um, you know, what happened in 2020, the elections, right? We see we see an attack on our de- democratic processes across um, the United States. Uh, I believe there are 400 anti-voting suppression laws throughout state legislators um, and then growing in, in numbers. I just want to ask your thoughts as, as a political historian and scholar on, on the 2020 election. I'm sorry, could you repeat? I think I got a 
Oh, no, no. For a second. Oh, no worries. I, I asked, um, what were your thoughts on the 2020 election, uh, which is kind of how this, this podcast got started? Yeah. I mean, 2020 was such a, a pivotal year, a memorable year. It, it was, was a unusual. perplexing year. Yeah, it was, it was a, a perplexing, perplexing year, year right? <laughs> yeah. So so much going on, right? So, you know, if we, I have to say with the pandemic, which, you know, is item number one, there's so much to recap. But looking back, and it seems like forever ago, Mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm thinking of all the things that that we were grappling with. So, of course, there was a pandemic, you know, so to to host a major national election in the midst of a public health crisis was quite the undertaking. It was really daunting. Yeah. You know, we also had this level of polarization that we've been grappling with for years that has really reached a fever pitch. And, you know, this this massive distrust in, in government, this massive distrust of the process, this distrust of the, the quote unquote other side, partisan rancor. And we oftentimes talk about the distance between the parties, but there are also these really important, not insignificant distances within each party as well. Um, you know, perhaps as a result of so much rancor, we see so many people who are opting out of the parties who don't uh, uh, um, embrace a party label. Right. So, you know, there are so many interesting features that are sort of, you know, within the political system. You also have, you know, these these additional contextual factors like the the major shifts in the demographics of the country. You know, we see a lot of, especially among the younger generations, a lot of frustration with politics. And so many people think, you know what, I don't want to be bothered with that at all. I'm actually going to go focus over here, you know, in the nonprofit sector or in community service. I'm just not going to pay attention to politics because it's so messy. Um, So there's just all of that swirling around. As a result of the election, we saw, um, you know, the first woman of color elected as vice president of the United right. States. She's United from States. my neck of the woods. Actually. From your neck of the woods. Exactly right. Your former yeah. senator from California. Um, you know, we saw, we did see striking turnout um, in a number of states, uh, especially among traditionally excluded or, or historically marginalized populations. So, you know, this movement toward a more inclusive multiracial democracy is something that we did see, you know, at the same time, you know, shortly after the election, we saw an insurrection at the Capitol as a number of Americans questioned the certification of the results of the election. So there's so much going on. It was really a tense time. And I think it continues to be tense in many ways. Yeah, no, most definitely. And and I think the, the, the vast majority of Americans are a little bit confused at the time, right? They they expected dramatic change after the 2020 election, and then they find themselves still dealing with the ramifications of a pandemic that's growing, um, and, and while also having to deal with another election that's coming up, the primaries, you know, who am I voting for, for what reasons, and there's a lot of political scientists out there, much like yourself, who are speculating what's going to happen, you know, post-2022 primaries, so so no, it's going to be very interesting what happens Um and, and I'm glad, but I, I want to ask you a very, very basic question, which is, um, is voting important? Oh, I love this question. I, you know, I'm, I'm long-winded these days, but I'll give you the, <laughs> the short answer, Colonel, and the long answer. So short answer is absolutely. Right. Unequivocally, like hands down. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so maybe maybe I could leave it there. If you want to know why I think it's important. Oh no, my next question was exactly why. Because I think, you know, my peers, my friends, you'd ask them, you know, is voting important? Of course it is. But then why don't we do it? 
and I think the crux of the argument is understanding why it's important. And, and I'll let you take that. Yeah, I'll let you take that away. I think you're right. So, you know, it's interesting because voting seems, you know, deceptively simple. You know, it just seems like I'm one of so many. My vote doesn't count. I recall, you know, when I was an undergraduate being, you know, somewhat frustrated when we would read the, the theory on, you know, the rationality of voting, this idea that voting is irrational because there's, you know, there's, it's so unlikely that your one vote is going to make a difference. And as we've seen in, in, in recent years, that, that's baloney. You know, and there's so many reasons, like one, of course, there could be extremely co close elections where, right. you know, every vote, it does indeed count. There's also just this sort of, um, the, the principle of it, you know, voting is at the core of our democracy. It is really, you know, truly one of the most fundamental aspects of what it means to have a democracy. You know, if you step back and just ask, what does democracy mean? It means, it's, it means that power resides with the people. It is up to the people to govern themselves, that elected officials who wield control and the capacity to make decisions are actually, those people are of the people. So they don't simply, you know, um, control the people or exert their will over the people. They are the people. They're our representatives and they respond to us. The votes are the mechanisms that we use to make our preferences known. And the idea is that our lawmakers in this political system respond to those preferences through elections. So this idea that you know, there might be significant segments of the population that sit out of elections and whose vo voices go unheard or underheard, you know, maybe they're muted, um, that's problematic because it really shapes the messages that are being incorporated into lawmakers' decisions. So I spent a lot of time in my, I teach a course called Political Analysis of Public Policy. Mm -hmm. And one of the, the, you know, points of departure in this class is to really think about what does the political process look like? Yeah. Really just break it down. to Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, right? I, I, so, I fundamentally agree with that. No, do continue, yeah. do continue. Well, I'm, you know, you know, Kunal, I'm, now I'm lecturing. So you got to be, you know, feel free to be like, <laughs> cut no, no, no. I, I'm taking the lecture. I think it's great. <laughs> what I would add to that, I think is, the the process right most people assume that that when we talk about elections it, it's specifically referring to the federal elections the way i like to break it down is how local elections matter you you mentioned how you know a couple of votes can determine an election i've been in those races where it's a couple hundred votes that so determine true. elections and yes. and most folks don't realize that it's your district attorney that's really going to determine your criminal justice system. It's your mayor and city council that's going to make sure the roads are paved and the lights are turning on and our, you know, electricity isn't gridlocked. California has a very large issue with that. It's also our board of supervisors that determine our county budgets so that that money gets funneled down into communities to ensure that hospitals and homelessness is addressed. So it's, exactly. it's crazy to just break it down. And that's what, what, the story I like to frame is that's the narrative is you need I to vote it. to elect those people. I Kundal, I want you to come and guest lecture in my class. Like, <laughs> you can come and join us. You can take the show on the road. Question for you. Yes. Can you guess approximately how many elected offices are there in the United States? You had to guess. I don't know. I, I guess modestly, maybe a couple hundred thousand, but if I'm being honest, maybe, maybe even millions. I don't know. 
That's a really good guess. 500,000, approximately 500,000. Very good. And when we think about that, there are so many local, you know, county level, municipal and state level offices that are so critical to what our lived experiences are, wherever we are, that people often forget. And so you're absolutely right, Kanoa, like those votes matter at every level. And, you know, again, lawmakers have an incentive to pay attention to what their constituents desire, like what their the messages that they're sending. And, you know, we also know that the messages that lawmakers get from different segments of the population often differ. So it could be that even within, say, a a particular political party, there's this sense that, well, you know, if some people are going to do the the heavier lifting in terms of engaging with elected officials, like maybe I'm not going to do anything, but some people out there will vote and write letters to their members of Congress or, you know, go lobby, you know, stop in on Capitol Hill, then my interests will be represented. But that's not necessarily true. It could be that the things that you know, people who share maybe a general sense of your your political perspective, uh, perspective or preferences, the, the the sort of specifics of what they say or what they request or what they advocate for, oftentimes looks very different from what their colleagues maybe who come from different socioeconomic brackets or different racial or ethnic or gender backgrounds might prefer. Yeah. No. It's definitely very nuanced <clears throat> to understand a voter and, and why why they do what they do. Uh, but I think um, it, it's it's important to make sure that that we have you know folks like me, eighteen year olds who are who are going to vote, and we have our 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 eighteen to forty year olds who are going to vote, and we have our old people who are going to vote because every vote to me has has a, has a is a choice. Because if you're not voting, then somebody else is making that decision for you. Somebody else is determining an outcome in an election. So it's this is your opportunity to, to make your voice heard. Um, and I think making that clear is, is what we can do. It's just the best we can do. Um, and I want to ask. Said. Yeah, no, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, recently, early January, <clears throat> we had voting, voting week. We had a couple bills in Congress, the Freedom to Vote Act, the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. And, and we saw this, this kind of very archaic policy in the Senate House rules um, determining you know, what a majority of senators w- wanted and what a majority of Americans wanted, which is our voting rights restored and, and ensuring a federal mandate so that these state legislators who are trying to keep their majorities can't. You know, federal, federal law is, is overrules state law. <laughs> That's been in, in effect for a little bit. Um, so, so what were your thoughts when, when that was happening? Obviously, as a historian, obviously, as a political scientist, what was going through your head when these conversations, which we've been having for centuries, comes yes. up again? It, that. So that's where I would start, Kunal. The idea that this is not new. That this is something that we have actually been been grappling with, you know, for for generations uh, now, centuries. And so, I think the one thing that I would emphasize to people, and it, it, this connects with your previous question about why vote, why is voting so important? I think it's critical to recognize that the right to vote has been hard won. This idea of having um, a a democracy that is broadly inclusive, where, you know, most people ought to be able to expect to go to their local polling place to be able to cast a vote and to not have any drama. Essentially, that's what people, that's all we want. Right. Yeah, but that's not something that has been guaranteed, certainly not to everyone. And, you know, when you think about this in the longer 
history and trajectory of voting rights in the United States when you acknowledge the fact that, you know, early on, there were these exclusions by race, by gender, by socioeconomic status, by property ownership that limited access to the franchise. And slowly but surely over time, the, right. our democracy became more inclusive as people fought and many died in order to ensure that we would all have the right to have our voices heard in this democracy. So, you know, it's interesting, we've gotten to a place where, and, and I think it's easy post, you know, when we think of the, the major advances during the civil rights movement of the mid 20th century, the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, you know, it, when many of the, the de jure forms of segregation and discrimination, those that were codified in law, Mm -hmm. actually went away, you know, or they or they were they were transformed, like those laws fell off the books. A lot of people felt like, oh, the fight is done, you know, it's over. But then we had to actually pay to enforce closer them. attention. We yeah. have to enforce them yeah. and to pay attention to the de facto forms of desegregation or, or discrimination and, and segregation. And so a lot of the things that we're seeing, you know, it's actually the attempt to restrict voting rights and access through other means. So, you know, maybe it's not going to say that we're going to have a poll tax like we might have in previous generations or you know we will intimidate people at the polls and right. you know but and there will be this this sort of overt violence but now we're doing things like or, or we see people lawmakers doing things like or using mechanisms like um you know id laws strict voter id laws right. uh, very strict Voter registration. Yeah, removing um, same-day registration. Oh yeah, I, confining registration, right? Like the prerequisites to to engage, right. um, and then and then you know perhaps most egregiously gerrymandering. This very intentional, careful manipulation of political boundaries that really permits lawmakers to pick their voters and not the reverse. Mm -hmm. So you know when you talk about those archaic. Um, rules, you know, like we even think about the filibuster as really constraining our capacity to make change and to fix these egregious problems. You know, these are this is that politics by other means and the restriction of democracy by other means that we see. And it really is problematic. I'm a political historian and an historical institutionalist, so I pay a lot of attention to toward how the rules of the game and the structures of our political landscape and policyscape really shape questions of equity or equality. And you know, those institutional forces that, that you've touched on, Kanul, are critical. Yeah. No, I'd, I'd have to concur. And it's it's almost insane, I mean, to me, to even even have to have that conversation again, right? Yeah, I, I we have have that conversation now. It's become so regular, right? I walk into class what's happening in politics. You know, we're dealing with this Ukraine situation. What's happening to our voting rights? I don't even know at this point. We don't have a federal mandate. But but I've, I've, I'm not disencouraged. I'm actually more encouraged because I, I would like to see these changes being made, right? And I know that my lawmakers, my congressmen, my senators are voting for them. But it's about spreading that. Um, to the states that don't and ensuring that that people have access to the ballot box. One of the things that was crazy to me was in the state of Georgia, one of the bills was like, as a poll worker, which I am, and I've done, 
you can't give water to, to somebody standing in line or you can be punished by fine or even by, by incarceration. I was like, this is, this is madness. It doesn't make sense. There's no logic here. There's no reasoning. It's no rational thought. It's simply to preserve a majority. Um, and like you said, choose the voters instead of the other way around. I'm going to use that. That's pretty good, actually. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. But, but no, <laughs> it, it's, it's crazy to, to even, it's surreal. It's, it, I, I don't know. Lost it really mind. is. Could I just tag on a final point on that score? I mean, I think really the the impulse or the incentive to retain power is corrupting. Yeah. You know, and I think sometimes we underestimate, and it's interesting. I mean, if you think about the fact that so many people hold such high mistrust of government and elected officials. Nowadays, yeah. Nowadays, nowadays. Yes. You know, particularly since Watergate, you know, so we've seen this yeah. build over, over the years. But what's interesting is, and, and maybe I'm just, you know, maybe it's just me, but I do feel like people, I don't know that we're quite as um, negatively predisposed to think of our lawmakers as being so um, sort of egregiously committed to restricting voting rights or doing things that are just so egregious to retain power. Like, I still think there's this level of kind of like surprise and shock when we get a, get a sense of just what people are willing to do to retain power. And I think that's, you know, as we think through legislative reforms and, and sort of broader systemic reforms that could address some of these challenges. I mean, people are talking about you know, big ideas, like rethinking how we vote in the United States. So maybe instead of having a system with, you know, like single member districts, which we have, thinking through, you know, some other form of voting, like rank order voting or rank choice yeah, rank or advisory choice. voting, right? Like right. just yeah. like really truly going back to the drawing board. And I think you know, for me, as someone who has the, the luxury of, of spending a lot of time thinking about policy solutions and thinking big about policy solutions, options like that, where we might actually take a time out and just imagine if we were to start fresh and to reform the system without any assumptions about what's possible, without any, you know, just sort of knocking things off of the table before we really grapple with them. But if we really thought big, like what could we do? What kind of system should we develop in order to maximize the probability that everyone will be able to come to the table and will be able to participate? What would it take? You know, might it be an election day holiday? Might it be, you know, reforming how we organize the drawing of political districts? Maybe we don't have lawmakers draw their own districts yes. anymore. Independent commissions. Independent commissions. Yeah. Like, you know, what lessons might we take from other democracies or other, you know, other other democracies around the world? Like I just think there are so many ways that we could, you know, our system is great. It's been doing, you know, wonderful things since the founders crafted it. You know, it doesn't mean though that it doesn't need to be tweaked and to evolve and with the change. To evolve to, to be yeah. renovated a little bit. Exactly. You know, in political science, I, I, there's a, a term that we talk about in relation to policies called drift. And it's this idea that over time, as society changes and as you know the, the sort of look of, of the people evolves, you know, oftentimes because of demographic shifts. Um, you know, we can fail to update policies to fit with the changes in society. And as a result, they're not nearly as effective. 
I feel like we've got some kind of drift going on here in our political institutions. We've had some really important changes in our polity, and we have not updated our political institutions in ways that suit our contemporary needs. And we really have to do that if we want to take, if we really take our democracy seriously and we value it, which we do, we really have to move away from you know, the system where we're entrusting people who do have a, a conflict of interest, they have an interest in retaining their power and oftentimes they're in the seats to make those institutional decisions. We've got to find some way of actually doing some, you know, stepping back and bringing in people who will be judicious and selfless in helping to address the, the, the gaps and shortcomings in our institutions. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, that was, that was well said. Um, but no, no, I, I'd, I'd have to agree. There definitely needs to be an update, like a like a huge software update in 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 our current <laughs> democratic processes. Uh, I think across the board, whether we're looking at municipal, um, county, state, we're, we're looking at it all. I think most, I guess, an example that's that's pretty current in, in California right now is is we had a bill AB fourteen hundred, um, and it was supposed to guarantee single payer, universal single payer health care. Um, and it was a big deal. It was, I had the legislator on my show. Uh, his name is Ash. He's a cool dude. Um, and, and unfortunately, it passed appropriations. It passed uh, the health committee, but they didn't get to vote on it because it was mm. pulled be just because of the sheer amount of, of uh, opposition and, and funding uh, of those candidates, of those state legislators that oppose it. And we, we don't even know who didn't want it, but we know that it was an overwhelming majority. And it was that retention of powers, that retention of, of traditional ideology um, and, and things need to change. Um, and that, that sometimes start with elected leadership, but I think it also goes, goes with, with research, with, with figuring out, going back to the drawing board, seeing what we can do. Um, and like I said, massive software update. Please. <laughs> I like, I love that analogy. That's yes. good. Yeah. Uh, but no, that, thank you for that. Um, I, I always like to end the show uh, with one final question, which is what is your advice uh, to, to the next generation, to the graduating class of voters? Um, you know, like you said, you touched on it. Some of them feel alienated. Some of them are very exhausted. Some of them are ignorant. Um, and, and what can we do to, to encourage them to stay engaged, to be involved and to help tackle these issues that we're facing? You know, I think for me, we think about this a lot here at Polis because that's our that's our core objective is to right. really help the members of our community, and, and we think of this as a you know the Duke community, but really the, the broad community to become engaged, active, um, you know, democratic citizens, you know, participants as citizens in lots of different ways for the long haul. And so, you know, to my mind, I think you know, thinking big about what it means to be politically engaged to begin with, because I think it's very easy to, you know, we kind of go down these narrow pathways and we think, okay, if I'm going to be politically engaged, that means that I'm the person who's going to be running for, for office, or I'm going to be the person who is, you know, you know, we tend to, to, pick out one particular thing that we think of as like that's doing politics. And oftentimes it's a lot more diverse than that. Like there's so many ways to engage. It could be, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna think carefully about these issues and I'm going to write a blog piece. I'm going to, you know, go and talk to my lawmakers. I'm going to organize some focus groups and, and discussions in my community. You know, goodness knows, dialogue. I'm gonna just talk to somebody who's outside of my bubble that's doing 
valuable political work and or start a podcast or start a podcast (laughs) you know whatever you can do from wherever you sit to make this world a little better this democracy um a a more a more proper or a truer democracy i think is critical work um so one i would say just you know thinking really big about what it means to engage as a democratic citizen and to engage in politics Um, two i would say as much as you can, especially for young people, finding opportunities to talk to people who don't look at all like you, who don't think at all like you, who don't come from you know your neck of the woods. Like I mean, people who maybe also you know that you automatically disagree entirely with. That's a skill I think that we are losing, and that that we're we have in many cases few opportunities to develop is how to engage in meaningful, authentic perhaps transformative conversations with people who differ from us. Um, you know, we've got to learn how to do it because that also is, you know, just like voting, it's critical for our democracy to be able to connect with people who don't share our perspectives because it's that kind of collaboration and basically teamwork that it's going to take to get anything done. You know, I think we see this in our in our elite levels of, of political engagement that oftentimes lawmakers have a disincentive to talk to each other. Oftentimes, if you know, you have people who are on opposite sides of the aisle, they don't want to be seen talking to each other and getting along. That might actually be a liability. But in order to fix our democracy and to do great work for everyone, that's what it's going to take. Yeah, no, I'd have to agree. Um, getting people, um, I think the easiest way would be just getting people to a dinner table and having some really nice food. And there you go. Yeah, I just solved polarization in the United yeah, States. Yeah, you did. Yeah. I like this. I support this. If we exactly. do a grant proposal, you know, especially with there's food involved. Yes. Count yes. Just bring food. <laughs> just bring food and everything will be okay. Uh, <laughs> but no, no, thank you so much. Um, how the, the, This is the part of the show, the segment where you're allowed to promote yourself uh, you can shout out your um, your uh, social medias or platforms so that people can follow you and stay updated on your research. Oh, thank you for that, Kanol. Okay, so my Twitter is Deandra Rose. Um, I think that's all I have. I I'm, I know I, I think I'm on um, Instagram. You have to forgive me because it's really boring. I think it's Deandra Rose PhD. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, and then, but you all can find me, um, and I'm also Deandra.Rose at duke.edu. Um, I, I hope there are many members of the Duke community or prospective members like you, Kanol, um, who we have a chance of winning over to Team Duke. But it's been delightful to be here. Thank you so much for the opportunity. No, no, of course. The pleasure was all mine. Thank you so much for the for the perspective, for the insight. I think having that that, again, that scholarly input um, is necessary in finding the right solutions. Uh, so, so I couldn't, I couldn't ask for more. Well, thank you, Kanal. I think you should run for president. And I think, you know, when you do, I, I didn't pay her to say that, by the way, that was totally like unscripted. I'm serious. <laughs> Sign me up. I will, I will work on your campaign. That's one campaign I will get cussed out for. All right. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you. Thank you for the very preliminary support. Um, <laughs> uh, but no, thank you again. I do wish you the best of luck. Hope to see you on campus very soon, but, but wishing you all the best. Please stay safe uh, with, with things that are going on right now. Thank you so much, Kano. Yeah. You too. And all to all your viewers. Yes. Yeah. Thank you all. Thank you. Take care. Thanks. You too.